Welcome into the Think Deeper podcast. We're back with another week. Before we get to today's episode, I want to tell you guys about a couple things. First of all, the book giveaway. We are still working up to the number. We got to get 100 likes on our Facebook page before we give away our next ebook. We're at 97 as we record this. And so uh, I am sure by next week we will have eclipsed that number, but be sure to join. That gives you more time to enter into the giveaway. Go to facebook.com slash thinkdeeperpod, P-O-D, um, or just search Think Deeper Podcast on your Facebook. There's a pin post at the top says, here's your chance to win a free ebook. Comment, share, um, make sure you, you get yourself entered. Got a good chance to win. And so I want you to, I want to make sure everyone checks that out. But before we get into the episode as well, I just wanted to uh, speak for a minute on what we're doing with the podcast here. I really want to thank Joe and Will for... Uh, coming in this year, really pushing the idea of getting the podcast going again. Uh, it's been a lot of fun for us, and, and we're hearing from you guys that, that it's been enjoyable, been profitable for you guys. And every time we put something out, I don't know, you guys have preached, you've written articles, written stuff, I've, I've done the things that I've done, put out books, and uh, all that with Focus Press, and it's like, nobody's going to read this, nobody's going to listen to this, but now nah, let's just throw it out there and see who does. And so to hear from people who are like, I'm really enjoying this, I'm benefiting this, if one person was listening, it's kind of like, wow, somebody paid attention to us. And so I've been thinking about that as as we've heard from you guys, heard from listeners, and um, that it's just something I wanted to give thanks for. But also uh, with with us, we, we really take this seriously, and I want to thank these guys for the hard work they put in. Um, you know, we're texting outlines back and forth all weekend long, making sure we've got everything set up, making sure we're getting to the points that we need to get to, and... Uh, it's it's been a great benefit for me. I hope it's been a great benefit for you guys. And so, uh, again, thanks to all who are listening. Thanks to Joe and Will for uh, really helping get this going and keep it going. And uh, we'll just keep on rolling and, and hope uh, each week we can put out some content that you guys enjoy. I have the birth of two children coming up very quickly. Uh, but we do have episodes backed up. Hopefully we don't miss any weeks. Um uh, but you might not hear from us for, for a week in there if things get a little bit too hectic. Other than that, though, uh, we're, we're just planning to keep on rolling. And as always, if there's topics you guys want us to address, be sure to, to email in, to comment on the Facebook. Reach out to us. We want to make this an interactive show. We want to make this something that you can get the most out of as well. And so, again, thanks to the listeners. Thanks to Joe and Will. And with that, we'll get into this week's episode. This week, we're going to employ the, the countdown format, the top five format, with uh, a topic that Joe and Will and I have kind of been kicking around, and, and with things that have come up in recent episodes, we thought, you know, that is a really misused verse, or that's a verse that we need to set things straight on, and so we said, let's just do an episode on the top five most misused Bible verses. There are many, we might uh, mention some honorable mentions later on, but we think these five are right at the top of the list. And so uh, before we get into it, you guys got any comments, anything to add? If we did like a top 10, I mean, we, we would be here for two, three hours because you're right. There are so many. And, um, you know, if you're listening and you, you've got some that you want to throw in again, you know, the Facebook group that we have comment, you know, th these are just the ones that we sat down and we figure out, hey, in some order, you know, we have an order for them, but in some order of another, this is the this is the top five. So uh, we'll see where it goes. 
And we shot this around. There's going to be some that um, maybe have some sub points of ones that are misused. Um, but uh, these are our top five. Again, I think as well made mention, um, if you disagree with these, if you have more to add, if you say, oh, you missed this one, this is my favorite, let us know. We'd love to hear from you, as they say on YouTube. Like, comment, subscribe. Um, we want to make sure Rate, that- review, right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, make sure to, to comment below. Uh, find us on Facebook, YouTube, whatever it is. Let us know your top five, but we're going to get right into it. Jack, you want to lead us off? Well, uh, I want to make one more comment before. I, if you've misused these verses, we're not making fun of anybody. We're, we're trying to really- Number one, point. set these things right. But number two, we hope that you can come out of this with maybe some good Bible study tips of reading context, of, of understanding things properly, uh, because we live in such a, a book, chapter, verse mindset toward the Bible of you kind of flip it open one verse at a time, but all the verses work together. All the verses have meaning mm. in light of a, a broader meaning. And so in this, again, it's not to hammer anybody that, that has shared these wrong on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or whatever just so that we can really know how to study the Bible better. So with that, number five, who wants to throw that one out for us? Will, go for it. Oh, Will, we'll go into number five. (laughs) Matthew chapter 18, verse 20 is, in our opinion, the fifth most misused, abused, whatever word we want to use, uh, Bible verse. So I'm just going to read the verse. Just the, just the verse, and then we're obviously going to get into the context to show why it's misused. But Matthew 18, 20. And you're using New King James, correct? Yes, New King okay. James, New King James Version. Um, and it says, for where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. So I'll set the stage here with this verse, and I will kick it to these two to um, establish why it's so misused. So maybe you have heard people use this verse before, and typically, at least the way that, that we have observed people use it, is they will use it in the context of a worship setting. And they'll say, you know, where two or three or where two or more are gathered, that means God is there. That means that is an acceptable time of worship. I've heard people use that to defend the idea that, well, hey, I can go out, you know, you know, my congregation might be having worship service, but I can go out back on my boat with two of my family members and that worship is acceptable. And that's kind of the way that that, that verse will be used. So Joe and Jack, and I don't know which one of y'all wants to start. Tell us why this is so misused. Yeah. Um, I think you got into it and, and, you know, that's the main thing I remember, uh, we used to do like people would go camping on Memorial day, right. And big, big time of camping. Well, what do you do? Do you go up early to beat everybody up to the mountains? Well, of course, you know, you're going to try to spend the weekend up there. So they'd always say, well, just worship with yourself. Don't worry about it. We're two or three are gathered in my name. Um, so you go camping, Friday through Monday. Hey, good for you. Two or three are gathered. Might as well just take the Lord's supper and, and you're good to worship there. Um, that's not what this verse is saying. And so I think it's a good idea to really start understanding. This is going to set the tone for all of them. The idea of context. Right. I think we have to get into what the context is for each of these verses as, as we'll see our top five. Uh, but this is a perfect one to start us off on the idea of context because that solves uh, so much of it. And Jack, you're you've done a lot of study on specifically on Matthew and, and also you were teaching a class, I think recently on how to study your Bible. I'll kick that over to you. Explain that idea though of context and why that matters here. Yeah. As I said, kind of in the intro, we, we 
because we can do verses by chapter and verse, we can say, all right, this is a complete idea. It's not. We would not read anything else this way. You would not read uh, a fiction book by, and not that the Bible's fiction, but a book that's telling a story, a history book, whatever. Open it up to a page, slap your finger on a sentence and read it and just take that to mean what it was. You wouldn't read a letter from somebody that way, you know, when we get into the epistles and, and the other parts of the Bible to just slap your finger on a, a, a sentence and then take that sentence and apply it to whatever you want. You realize the person writing that letter used that sentence to mean something in the, the broader meaning of their letter, that when somebody is telling a story, giving an account of history, that sentence goes along with everything around it. But with these verses, we do the exact opposite. And so where two or three are, have gathered in my name, I am there in their midst. Some Bible verses have a, a generic truth to them, that they what they mean is generally true in all senses. What this means, you know, is is defined by the kind of gathering he's talking about here. And so as, as we look at Matthew 18, as we look at the gathering, it really is talking about correction, about church discipline is, is kind of the, the title that we use for Dealing this Dealing with someone who's gone astray or, or <laughs> exactly. somebody who, who has wronged you. Right. Right. And, and when there is that issue, it starts off of, if your brother sins, go and show him. And then he gives that process. If he doesn't repent, take somebody that's that'll be a witness so that they can see them. the person say, I'm not repenting, I'm not stopping. Then you can keep going until you, in, until you get to the point where you take them to the elders of the church. And uh, it, it is dealt with on a broad scale. And, and then they're thrown out from the fellowship, right? Let them to be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Um, this is a difficult process. This is not a comfortable process. And so when you get that context behind it, then Jesus says, where you're gathered in my name, I'm there with you. I realize that you have my support. You have my strength and, and power to, to do this. It's not just you can go camping or, or we did this a lot during COVID, right? that you can watch your live stream in your living room with your, your spouse and your kids and you're gathered in my name. They're gathered with you. Right. Yeah, exactly. COVID I think is where this really kicked off. I mentioned Memorial day, but I feel like COVID is where it's been abused. And even to this day, people are, we've had an entire podcast on this, but where people are abusing it to stay in their homes and, well, Christ is there with us. Yes, Christ is always with you. When one person is there, Christ is with you. In the context of worshiping, I think it's important to recognize, uh, don't forsake the assembly. If I can look at Hebrews 10 and try to contradict the Bible, it doesn't contradict itself, meaning there must be two different things here. If he's saying, don't forsake the assembly or the assembling of yourselves um, with, with the church, I don't know. I, I think this, yes, you can with two or three, I think Christ is always in your midst, depending on how you look at it. This is not a worship setting, worship context right after this. We know Peter's well-known question of, hey, how often shall I forgive my brother? Uh, up to seven times and Christ says 70 times seven. We also know that one very well. So starting from verse 15 and continuing even through verse 20 is this idea of how do we handle the brother who's an heir? Do we forgive him? How many times do we forgive him? All of that. That's all it, in that It doesn't context. have to do with worship is essentially what Correct. we're saying. Right. And you, and the people, if there's anybody listening that's from uh, Decatur where I, where I teach and, and work with the youth down there, They'll tell you my sermons, my classes, I will use the word context over and over and over again to the point that they're probably sick of it. But it is so important. You think obviously Paul did not write Matthew, but you look at some of Paul's letters. How often does Paul spend six, eight, ten verses building on an idea, adding another layer to, to his thought? You know, you just read one verse of Paul, uh, you know, just any of Paul's letters you're getting an eighth of the idea. You're not getting the full idea. And so as, as we're looking here, as I'm look, glancing at this top five list that we have for pretty much every single one of them, 
you read the scripture in its context, you read the verse in its context, you're not going to have these issues of misusing it and abusing it. The problem is when we take a verse, completely rip it out of a place that it is and just drop it in, for instance, here, like with worship. They're not taught. Jesus isn't talking about worship here. And that's what that's so many people will try to do that with, again, a lot of scriptures. The reason we have a top five here. I think so. Let me ask you this. I'm sorry. I was go ahead. No, 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 go for it. I think that that gives us two good principles to bring out of this point. Number one is always look at the context. What is actually being talked about? Uh, Almost all of our our verses here are going to depend on context. Number two, as as Joe brought up, don't make scriptures go against each other. If if there are so many scriptures that say you need to assemble together one another's and and relying on each other and and all the things that the church comes together for, you can't find a verse that vaguely kind of gives you the idea that you can get away from everybody else and still have your own relationship with God. You know, you'll hear people say, "I, I come to God in my own way. And therefore, you know, I have my relationship with him on this two or three and, and me and my friends can go out on a mountaintop and, or on a boat as uh, all the things you said. And so don't pit scriptures against each other. What is the, the sense that scripture gives you? And then don't try and find a verse that contradicts that. So let me ask you this. If I were to, let's just say, okay, I'm not going to use this verse specifically, but I still am going to go up to the mountains on Memorial day. Am I right to worship God on my own or, or with my family, let's say where two or three are gathered, not specifically using the scripture. What would you guys say to that? For those that are listening that may still say, hold on, but even if this isn't the verse to back up my point, am I still wrong? Cause Christ is, you could point to other ones and say, Christ is in your midst or, you know, the spirit is with us or, you know, things like that. Is somebody wrong to worship either on their own or with a small group gathered? Let's say, let's say, you know, their family, two to three, four people. It's a good question. Um, I'll come right out and say it. My family's done that before, you know, traveling with, with folks Our before and, and where, you know, we have decided to, to do it ourselves. And, you know, of course, we're not we don't shortchange worship by any means. Um, off the top of my head, the answer that I would give is if possible, if, if it is something that you're able to do. I would say, you know, find a place where, you know, there's elders present, find a place that you can, that you can attend to worship. When it comes to your question directly, Joe, I don't think you're sinning. You know, if, if you've got, you know, eight to 10 people, you're, you're camping, whatever to, to follow your analogy. And that's what you decide to do. Uh, as long as you're not using verses like this to defend it. I don't know. I could be off on that. What do you guys think? I feel like you, the the circumstances are very important. Obviously, there's extreme circumstances where you're just not anywhere near uh, a, a right. place to go worship with the saints. Other times, it might, maybe there's a sickness, whatever it is. Uh, other times, maybe you just physically cannot get there, whatever it might be. I think, in general, if the opportunity is there, go. Um, right. It's it, it's always good to meet new Christians. It's always good to go and hear a lesson, to get fellowship. I mean, the point, and is what I was getting at a minute ago with the other scriptures, is the reasons for going are why you don't do something like this, is why you don't avoid. Because... It, it can also be a precedent. It's very easy for, and a lot of folks abuse this. I think what Will's talking about of one-time vacation, you've got multiple families together. That's a little different than the me and my family are going to go do our own thing, you know. And so the circumstances very much determine it, but it's something to be very careful I would careful also, with. before we get to Joe, your answer, I would also add, what is your, what, what, what is in your heart? Is, or is Are you making this decision, well, I don't really feel like meeting anybody new. I would rather just stay here. It's more comfortable. It's something that I don't have to make you know, put forth a lot of effort. If that, if those are your intentions, that's probably not a good thing. And I think deep down, most of us know our intentions. Again, if, if it's something where, 
we're just not really feeling up to it. We'd rather just stay right here. It's the same thing with live stream worship that we talked about before. We'd rather sit on our couch. We'd rather sit there with our cup of coffee. It's about intentions. It's about, you know, where is your heart on the issue? But Joe, what do you think? Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think the intention matters to him who knows the right thing to do and doesn't do it. It's sin, right? James 4.17. So if you are feeling squirrely about it and you say, hey, this is, should I go to church, man? I feel like I should, but I'd rather just stay here. I think that's violating your conscience of what should happen. I think in a prolonged state, certainly you are you are disobeying the commands of assembling together, um, edifying one another, all the one another passages, I think in a prolonged, which is why I have such an issue with the COVID stance of, well, we're two or three gathered in my name live for, the last, for the last two years, live streaming. Well, you're going against a whole host of other commands. In a one-off situation, yeah, I think it comes down to conscience. I think it comes down to um, opportunity, availability, all sorts of stuff like that. And I agree with Jack. If you can, you should. I think I think it's good. If you absolutely can't, I, nobody's condemning you. I don't think that you're going to hell if you miss a week. Um, I would just, it's easy to make a habit out of it. That's where I would fall on this is, is try to, if it is, if you are missing one, make it very limited. For those we never missed for, for uh, going to church or going to uh, hockey tournaments and such, we'd be out of town. Even when my parents are paying thousands to have us, you know, go out and play hockey, uh, church comes first and we could have just worshiped in the hotel room later. No, no, it's God comes first. So set the precedent, especially if you got kids, let them know, Hey, church comes first. This is very important. We're not just going to worship on our own later type of thing, put God first in that. Um, so that's what I would say, but, um, no, all right. Thanks for answering the question, fellas. Let's, let's go ahead and jump into the second. Um, so Matthew number, 18, number 20, four, yeah, number four, we're going yeah, backwards. Good here. point. Good point. That's there you go. There you go. We're backing up. Um, we're counting down. So in our countdown, uh, second is going to be Galatians 3.28. Uh, there's neither Jew nor Greek. I'm reading from the NASB. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Um, this is a very popular verse. I, I find, I feel like this has been more popularized than the last five years. What do you guys think? I, I, like, I know people have known it for a long time. I feel like this is come, becoming more um I guess coming more into the public consciousness as sure. a Bible verse. Why do you think that is? I think this goes two directions, two uses that that have come out of it that I put it on our list for misused Bible verses is neither Jew nor Greek. We had our episode on Christian nationalism. I, there's a lot of people who take this verse to say essentially you lose all national status, you lose your citizen, not your citizenship, but basically any earthly identity in that. And as we talked about in the Christian nationalism thing, that's not really true. That episode was a few back. If you didn't catch it, you can uh, find it on the podcast page. But that's not what this verse is saying, because there's still a host of verses in the New Testament that talk about being Jew and Greek. I mean, Romans 9 and and the Jews and Paul identifying himself as a Jew and, and what that meant to him. And so that's the first one, is basically people saying we we have no identity tied to anything here on earth. And it's like, well, your last name alone does that to a degree. And so sure. that is, is one misuse. The other one that I think is, is more common and, and more nefarious is male nor female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. And people will take that to say, it, it's an egalitarian argument. Women in ministry, women preaching, women eldership, women basically total equality in all things in the church. And again, once you've been baptized, we're all one, right? Right. Yeah. You're one. There's, there's no difference between the two of you. And that's not what this verse is saying at all. Well, and, and not just, there's no difference, but a lot of people will even take this to say, 
you no longer the 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 roles that we see for men and women those go out the window yeah husband wife right yeah right husband and wife roles you know yeah just men and women roles in general and yeah no i've heard people use this that that this particular verse in that way before to say kind of like what joe said hey once you're baptized there is none of that there is you know it's it's almost like the argument is once once somebody's saved, it's it, you're Andromedus, so to speak. You know what and, I mean? Androgynous. Is, yeah. Androgynous <laughs> is the word. Um, <laughs> right. But and so they'll use that to eliminate the roles. They'll use that to say, again, men and women are equal. This episode is certainly not about uh, men and women's roles, but using that using this verse in that way is obviously incorrect and abusing it out of its context, just like it was with the, the previous one that we looked at. And that, there's a that other principle Joe brought up before about. Bible verses against each other, you would basically be making Paul say this here and then talk about, uh, number one, different instructions to men and women for moral, moral living, different instructions to men and women in the church, 1 Corinthians 14, 1 Timothy 2. Did Paul, like, change his mind? Did he right. disagree with himself? I mean, like, right. you have to interpret this verse in a way that makes sense with the other ones, and if you interpret this verse in the sense of, basically, there's no such thing as a man or a woman anymore— then the other ones are just flat out wrong. And, and that, of course, is not the case. Well, Jack, you had uh, a Facebook post a little while back, maybe a few weeks back uh, at this point, that um, where you posted something about this and the differences between men and women. And I remember seeing uh, this argument that, that, and you may be able to articulate this better, but basically something along the lines of like, if, if, male, if men and women are fully matured in Christ, there's going to be no difference. And where do they get that? You're you're taking it out of one. There's neither male nor female. Um, I understand that you know it's well. Okay, let's let's before we get back to that, I was going to bounce it back to you. What is actually being said here? We know what's not being said. We know egalitarianism is wrong. We know we can look at other scriptures, as you mentioned, First Timothy two and First Corinthians fourteen. Women remaining silent, even Ephesians six with the hierarchy of men and women of, of husbands five, and wives. Yeah. Right, five. Sorry, six with with masters and slaves and fathers and children. So at the end of chapter five, with um, yeah, husbands and wives, and there's a hierarchy there that is not done away with. But what actually is being said here? Well, good. Just go back two verses again, context, context, context. If you go back to verse 26 for you are all, and this is new King James again, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. He's talking about salvation here. He's not talking about roles. He's not talking about the fact that you, as Jack said, you don't have any uh, attachment to your nationality anymore or anything like that. He's saying, once you become a child of God, when it comes to salvation, not your roles, again, when it comes to salvation, you're all sons of God. You're all children of God. Being being a female does not give you a different distinction when it comes to salvation than it does being a man. The Jew and the Greek thing, Jews and Gentiles, there was no longer any of that. There was no longer any distinction, again, when it came to salvation. That's what he's talking about. Here. Right. So you have that immediate context of uh, baptism and, and that, and, and the law is the tutor that leads us to Christ, and so the law you know, is, is in the past and all that. And, and then you have the broader context of the book of Galatians and the occasion for the book of Galatians. Why did Paul write the book of Galatians? Because some Jewish Christians were telling the Gentile Christians, essentially, you've got to mix your Christianity with the law. You've got to have law, circumcision. Right. You've got to have, you know, the, the uncleanness. Some of these rules, especially circumcision, was a really big one that Gentile Christians, when they convert, have to follow this Jewish ritual. And Paul's whole point is... That's that doesn't matter anymore. When you're baptized into Christ, you're not a Jew, you're not a Gentile, you're not all these different things. You're one in Christ, and and you're this new family. It's not this old family. It's not 
you're you're moving backwards and you're becoming a Christian and a Jew. The Christian Jew and the Christian Greek are both Christians, and that's where the unity is. And so it's not to say that baptism washes away to the point that Joe was bringing up that came out in that discussion, that that male qualities and female qualities go away and you become the exact same. Male or baptism does not wash away testosterone, estrogen. It does not wash away tendencies. Biological differences. Yeah, I mean, like... Just in general, men are taller than women. Men are built stronger than women. In general, women are more nurturing than men. You know, like these qualities that God created us with that go all the way back to Adam and Eve, all the way before the fall, those don't, don't go get away washed away in baptism. baptism. Exactly. Right. And and to make this verse say that is to miss out on its immediate context, is to miss out on its meaning, is to make it contradict the rest of the Bible. It's all kinds of principles violated to make it say that. We've we got to have a a separate podcast on this. I'm sure we will. We've touched on this in previous podcasts. This idea of like value and purpose are not the same, right? Right. We do have different roles. Um, we all are of the same value. We're all heirs according to the promise, as he says in verse 29. That's very much the context. We are all heirs. We all have the same value in God's eyes. We're not having to change, like with the circumcision thing, um, you know, and and go back into Judaism type of thing. We're all in Christ together. But man, it's easy to start using this verse out of context and to, to talk about, as you mentioned, Will, the androgyny of, well, we're all kind of one in Christ. And the issue that I have with the comment, like when we're all mature, um, what does that look like? Which one do we, which do the males become more female or do the females become more male? Which way do we, do we go? Well, they come together. That can't work. Yeah, either, usually it, it almost always means the males to become more, female. Become more female. Correct. Currently in our society. Right. Yeah. The, the female is never going to be asked to, well, except the interesting thing is the people that believe that will ask females to lead because females can lead. It's like, well, hold on a second. So you want them to be more male and then you want the male to be more female. We're back around to roles. We're back around to the, to the same place we started. You've just reversed it. You made women the leaders. You made men the the followers. Um, there's still hierarchy there, and you're essentially you've just flipped who it is. So well, I think the, there's a. I was just gonna say the point is for for anybody that might have used this verse, hopefully not, but might have used this verse in this way before. Don't use w- this one verse to combat hundreds of verses by Paul written by the same author that make a distinction between again physical qualities, biological qualities, roles, things like that can't pit the, as we started with, we can't pit the Bible against each other. And that's what so many, this one in particular, possibly more so than any of the other ones we're going to look at. People use this verse to, again, pit the Bible against each other. Exactly. So, exactly. And, um, I was going to say, any, anything else that you guys have? I think that sums it up pretty well. I, that episode, and, and we've talked about roles, and, and as Joe mentioned, this this is going to be an episode at some point. And so uh, we'll we'll leave the analysis on, analysis on uh, male-female roles with that one for now. But again, it's just bad Bible study. And so continuing on our misused verses, ver, verses, what is a verse? Misused verses. <laughs> you said uh, words, more like it. <laughs> so so <laughs> to recap real quick. Bible passages. Yes. Bible passages. Them. That's even harder to say. I'm just going to go with. <laughs> Too many yeah, S's. Yeah. Bible verses. Uh, number five was Matthew 18, 20, where two or three are gathered in my name. Number four, Galatians three twenty eight. neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female. Number three, and this is a big one. We, we It used to be number one. I think we we agreed that it's moved backwards a little bit, and we'll explain why in a minute. Matthew 7, verse 1. I'll go ahead and uh, read this one. Hi, also from the New American Standard, 1995 edition. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. 
Short, sweet, to the point, and man, how many times were you told that anytime you made a call that something was right or wrong? The Bible says, do not judge. Yeah. Number three on our list, do not judge so that you will not be judged, Matthew 7, 1. What do you guys have to say? It is going to be a little bit of a shock uh, that this is not number one. I'm sure most people, when they saw the list, are like, I got this. I, I know which one number one is going to be. And to be honest, I think we were on the same page until I think you brought it brought up a very interesting point, um, which is, well, I first, I love the way you said NASB 1995 edition, like pump and chest. That's what's up. No, it's just that there's a new edition now. There's no, a new one. And so I know. I'm, I'm, I'm trying know. to be. It's hilarious. I could definitely hey. tell that it was from 1995, too. I mean, absolutely. It's absolutely. It matters. It does. No, it's, uh, I use the same Bible as you, the exact same one. I love it. But, um, how do y'all feel about the message Bible? No, sorry. (laughs) There's another episode. We're just going to keep taking notes on what else we're going to do. What else we're going to do? The message Bible is nothing but Matthew 7, verse 1. No, just kidding. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) I'm kidding. I'm kidding. We might have to do another one. We talked about this on translations on a podcast. Um, we got podcasts for days, people. So, uh, just so you know, we won't be running out of content. Anyway, the reason why I don't think this is number one anymore, Jack, you made a very interesting point. Uh, when we were discussing this. And that is this idea of not judging was the hot topic. Like that's what you did 10 years ago. Don't judge lest you be judged. And I feel like as a culture, we're moving away from that, uh, away from kind of the don't judge. They judge you anyway, and they don't really care. It's it's less of don't judge. They just shout you down into cancel well, culture. Well, I was going to say it was, it, was, it was tolerance for 20 years was the yes. buzzword that, that yeah. people were using. You know, you have to tolerate this behavior, you, you know, with the homosexual agenda, of course, when that was really taken off, in the mid to late 2000s, that was the buzzword tolerance. And people would use this verse kind of as a shield to hide behind when any criticism came their way. You know, they'd throw this verse out again, probably without any knowledge of the verses that follow or the verses that proceed. They would throw this one out to say, well, Jesus said you can't judge. So basically it was a trump card. I win is essentially the way that it's used. It scares you that in our culture, tolerance is no longer the thing because well, they've kind of gotten past that point. They've pushed it to the point where tolerance isn't the buzzword anymore. Um, uh, that's, a, in my opinion, that's a very dangerous trend that we're past that point. There's a quote. I, I believe it comes from Dune. I know it comes from the author of Dune. I haven't read the books. The movie is pretty good. When I'm weaker than you, I ask you for freedom because that is according to your principles. When I'm stronger than you, I take away your freedom because that is according to my principles. And so mm-hmm. it was, you need to tolerate us, you need to tolerate us, you need to tolerate us. And and that kind of became a catchphrase there uh, for a while, so much for the, the tolerant left, because they're not tolerant and cancel culture and all this. Like, yeah, they won. They no, gained they cultural dominance. And so this whole don't judge thing, they don't care that you're judging anymore. They're going to judge you to death because they won. They are, are now right. the, the dominant cultural uh, power that really... If we got to be honest with this, they're the dominant cultural cultural religion. Christianity is not yeah. the dominant cultural religion. When it was, they would point to Christianity and say, "Your Bible says you can't judge." Totally out of context. Now that's not the case. They don't have to do that anymore. They have their own religion, which says judging is great against anybody who goes against the religion. And so, going back to that though, that that explains why it slipped down our list. Putting it in context. Jesus says, do not judge lest, or so that you will not be judged, or lest you be judged in, in the King James Version. And yet, then he goes on in the next four verses to explain how to judge. Right. Hmm. Like, he's not, so you have to read verse one in that context. He's not saying no judging ever. Because if we had no judging ever, guess what would happen? You can't grade kids tests and and give them grades in school right you can't have courts you can't have uh you know sports that are graded by scores and things like that because you're judging people 
I mean, yeah. everyone makes judgments all the time. And, and so that's not what he's saying. And as I said, he goes on to explain how to judge is don't be a hypocrite. Look at yourself first. Use the standard that you're using. And verse 2 says it perfectly. For in the way you judge, you will be judged by your standard of measure. It will be measured to you. He's saying give grace. Don't be a hypocrite. Don't hold yourself up over people and look down on them in judgment. Make sure that you're well, using the same standard in both directions. Well, and the, the analogy that he uses in the following verses in verses three and four, when he talks about the speck and the plank, when he's basically saying, you know, a lot of you guys have a plank in your own eye when you're trying to reach and remove the speck. If you look down at verse five, what does he say? First, he says hypocrite. And then he says, first, remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to do what? To remove the speck. He still removes the speck. It's right. still a process of, yeah. again, judging to some extent. This verse, despite what so many people are going to try to use it to say, there is judgment. Like Jack said, that we make judgments all the time. Jesus here is not preventing judgments. He's saying, be careful. He's saying, well, tread very carefully when it comes to judging. The next verse, verse six, do not give what is holy to dogs. Do not throw your pearls before swine. We use that a lot. Don't cast your pearls before swine. How do you know who's the swine? How do you know who the dogs are? Right, you have to you have to judge at some point and say, it's not worth it with this person. That's a judgment in general. So no, Jesus is not saying don't judge. Um, it is very much about the hypocrisy. Consider who he'd be talking to here. Yes, it's the Sermon on the Mount. He's talking to a multitude of people. Who does he have in mind? My guess would be, obviously, it's to everybody, um, but the Pharisees in general. The Pharisees, right. Yeah, who are, this was their MO, is let me tell you what you're doing wrong, and they're not considering the log, the very big log that is in their eye, while they nitpick at the law that they created, basically, um, at other people. This is a universal principle. Everybody can use it. It's not just for the for the Pharisees, but in that concept, context, historical context, I think that's what's going on. But in our day and age, it's so easy. The, the worst thing, I guess, is the Christians that use this. It's easy to take this um, and use it against other Christians. As Jack, I think you correctly pointed out, this was a an aspect of the left's talking points when it still kind of was a Christian nation, they needed to use the Bible against us. Now that the, the cultural they don't need left, to use the Bible, you know, cultural the, left, yeah. the political left and cultural left have overlap, but we're, you know, yeah, progressive, yeah, good point. you know, cultural progressivism, secular and, humanism, and, whatever you want to call it. I guess my point is on both sides of it, we use it. Yeah. Whether well, you're, and, you know, on a political conservative, social conservative, however you say it, like almost everybody uses it this way. So that's not talking down one side or the other as much as they use it. They don't have to, but we're still using it a lot of the time incorrectly. Well, and something that I've noticed too, as the um, resident youngest person on this show um, with, you know, people that were my age back, you know, a few years ago versus the young people that I work with now, that the, the way that this verse was used, the tolerance thing had infiltrated so many young people's minds that, you know, you would hear them say things like, well, we can't really judge them. You know, maybe they weren't using it to defend something that they were doing, but they would look at somebody else, maybe the way that somebody else was living. And again, the culture, the way this verse had been used had been drilled into their heads so many times that they would say things like that. Well, we can't really judge them. You know, talking about denominations and things and, and the way the things that they have wrong, I would hear people, well, we can't really judge them for that. And they, again, kind of hiding, but using this verse as, as the reasoning for that. And so it's a very scary thing when we take verses like this, because it, it really does impact the minds of, of younger Christians. Again, the, just the experiences that I had, the people that I interacted with, Anytime you're taking a verse out of context, anytime you're not using the full context with a verse, young, impressionable minds can take that to the extremes. And well, to you your can point, see how it worked so well of 
this culture that we have now that nobody can ever be made to feel bad. Nobody can ever be, you can't ever offend anybody. And so that's where it's just do not judge. And you can say, that's not good. That is a bad thing to do. That hurts people or that's not healthy for yourself that you didn't do very good at that or that was not good of you to do. And you can't judge me. You can't judge me. It's like, well, then if there's no objective truth to tell you when you're wrong, guess what's going to happen? Societal collapse. Uh, right. and, and that's what we have. And I mean, people are, are really seeing the, the fruits of this. And that's another thing Jesus said in 15 and 16 of, of Matthew chapter 7, that you're going to know these false prophets by their fruits. How do you know what a fruit is? Again, there's judge. judgment involved. You're going to see. You're going to look and know this is good and that's bad. And, and again, as I said, the culture doesn't preach tolerance and do not judge anymore because they have now implemented their own standard of what's good and what's bad. And boy, do they judge and, and be intolerant based on that all the time. Well, and the issue here is not what's happening. It's how, right? What we, we look at it and say, well, don't judge. That's what to do. No, really what's the context of Matthew seven is how to judge. Don't judge in this way. Don't judge right. in this way. That's what needs to be preached because I think to your point, well, as you're talking of how, and well, both of yours really, but you think about young kids these days with, with transgenderism, with whatever it may be. And we say, well, don't judge. How we judge is very, very important. We can just shout them down and, well, you're a horrible person. How could you do this? And, and that's one way to judge. And that would be, I think, the incorrect way to judge. I think there is an aspect of don't judge, like take a second and consider where this person is coming from. And if you were to do that, if you were to consider your life, make sure you're in alignment with Christ and then consider where this person is coming from. There may be a host of reasons why people do what they do, which would shed some light and some context into their lives and help you understand them a little bit more. It doesn't mean that what they're doing is correct. It just means how we judge them is very, very important in judging them with a brutal, um, you know, kind of like a whip. That's not what we're intended to do. Yes, we do need to judge. Yes, we fall back on scripture. Obviously, that's our foundation for everything. How we approach these subjects, I think, is very important. So the kids these days that do use it still, uh, I think, are using it in the context of you don't know what people have been through. That's very true. We do not know what people have been through. What you've been through does not justify you doing whatever you want well, to do. That's the difference. Well, and the point that still, obviously, this still very much applies to us today, and that is kind of a point you made before, Joe. Make your own bed first. You know, as far as you pointing out somebody else's issues, and now I'm kind of mm -hmm. talking specifically within a congregation. You've got beef with somebody. You don't like the way somebody does some something. Make sure you don't have something in your life that you really need to be paying more attention to first. And I think that's something that obviously we need to be taking from that verse just to apply it to us today is, you know, again, just take a, take a, a self-evaluation of what you've got going on before you go start pointing out how somebody else needs to change what they're doing. Right. So uh, before we get out of this one, I think this one gives us our third principle of study. The first principle was context, context, context. Second principle was don't use Bible verses against each other. The third one is make sure you know what a verse does mean. It's, it's very easy to get to what a verse doesn't mean. Right. And what this doesn't mean is don't ever judge. What does it mean? It does mean the things exactly what you guys just said. Be careful in, in being confrontational towards others, being judgmental towards others, wanting to fix others, as, as Jesus is saying, take the log out of your own eye first. Because it should be a very sobering thing to read, by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. 
That mm-hmm. uh, the two extremes of that are to go. Okay, well, I'm not going to judge at all because judging is bad, and you know that's no good. That's not a good thing. The other extreme of that is being too judgmental and realizing that's what God's going to apply to me when I get there. And so if I don't ever give grace, if I I never let anybody off the hook, if I am always down on everybody else about every slip up they ever make, that's what I'm going to get coming back in return. That's, that's a pretty scary sobering. thought. It is. Yeah, it's yeah. a it's a very scary thought. And so. Making sure we're we're adequately giving grace, adequately giving other people room for their mistakes and their wrongs, and 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 assuming the best of them and all those things. And then on the other side, there's still judgment. It's still okay to say a wrong is wrong, as as you guys got at there. And so that's number three on the list. I believe we're back around to Will with uh, number two. Yeah. So number two and number three were were really close when the when the poll numbers came in about which one was going to fall where. Um, Number two is Mark 12, verse 31, and I am going to – I'll preface it, I'll read it, and then I'm going to kick it to Jack because he just had a fantastic article about this, actually tied into the previous one, uh, Matthew 7, 1. But Mark chapter 12, verse 31, again from the New King James, and the second like it is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So obviously in context here, you've got one of the scribes that comes to Jesus Jesus has kind of faced a line of questioning from different groups. You know, he faced the Pharisees when they asked about taxes to Caesar. He faced the Sadducees uh, when they were asking about the resurrection. Now a scribe comes to him and says, hey, what's the greatest commandment of the law? A lot of our listeners are probably familiar uh, with, you know, what we commonly refer to as the greatest and second greatest commandment. This Mark 12, verse 31, the second greatest commandment, again, is, is how Jesus refers to it and how we typically refer to it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So, Jack, you wrote an article recently about this. So I'm going to kick it to you in order to explain to our audience why and how this has not just become so abused and misused, but how it has overtaken verses like Matthew 7, 1 as some of the most misused verses in Scripture. Yeah, so the article, uh, I, I titled it, Love Your Neighbor is the New Don't Judge. Uh, we'll link to it on the, the, the post page for this episode on focuspress.org. Uh, So you guys can access that if you'd like. And my point in it is that don't judge was used so manipulatively to say, I can do whatever I want and you have to conform to my standard. You have to get off my back. You have to leave me alone. You have to, uh, you have to submit to me essentially and, and how I want things to be because don't judge. Love your neighbor is the new one. Now, like politically, socially, if there's anything that you want somebody else to do and the other person's a christian and and you know the other person's trying to follow the scriptures well you have to do it because love your neighbor uh i mean we saw this a million times over covid uh it was obviously where where it really came out of you got to go get your shot and and you got to wear a mask everywhere you go because if you don't you don't love your neighbor you got to do this you you can't meet together with other christians because love your neighbor um as we talked about in our COVID episode, there are a lot of things that are matters of opinion that are not definitively right or wrong in one way or another. And so to use this as a trump card is really sick. I, I, I really was disturbing how many Christians went to this of you have to do it my way or else you don't love your neighbor. Um, but what a okay. perfect way. What a perfect verse to beat people over the head with judge. There yeah. is a there's a negative connotation to judging. Right. So even in saying don't judge, there's kind of that negative connotation. Who in the world is going to argue against? But love, love right. your neighbor as yourself. We are loving individuals. We are to be known by our love. So anytime you can put love in there, which means do what I want you to, which is the antithesis of love, of forcing that, you know, forcing somebody to do it. But it's the same thing as those who are judge, you know, don't judge are judging me in general, uh, or, you know, judging, judging the other side. 
who's going to argue against love? That's why I think this packs kind of a, a more powerful punch than don't judge when the culture is using it in this way, because Christians are to be known by our, like, that's not wrong. We are to be known by our love, but what does love actually look like for them? It's whatever they want it to look like. That's the scariness is if we don't have a solid understanding of what's being talked about here and what love actually looks like, then you're going to have a lot of Christians who in an attempt to be right and into not be against God are going to fall right in line with this and say, man, I really, I want to make sure that I love my neighbor as myself. That's very important to me. I want to look like a Christian and be a Christian. And so I'll step in line. And meanwhile, we're falling right into their definition of love. That's, that's not right. So I'm going to drop a little education here. I might've said this on the show before. I don't know. The word, the term begging the question is never, ever, ever used properly, almost ever. Usually people, when they say, well, that begs the question, what they mean is it raises the question. The term begs the question is a logical fallacy in which you assume a conclusion, but how you begged the question is is you left the question open. Are, Are you sure? How do you know that? This is textbook begging the question. Well, if you loved your neighbor, you would do X, Y, and Z. Well, you haven't proved that. You've begged the question of how does that love your neighbor? And so with these things, let's say if you love the neighbor, you'll go out and get a COVID. If you love your neighbor, you'll, you'll go out and get a COVID shot. And if you don't, it's because you don't love your neighbor. There's a disagreement to be had there that that is the best way to love one's neighbor. And as it came out, you know, we, we found out the shot does not stop transmission. So it doesn't really do anything for your neighbor. Um, and, and so that question was very much a question that was was out there and it was just assumed that the question had been answered and so if you do you'll love your neighbor and you see this with a lot of things well he's, the bible says love your neighbor so we really need socialism mm. well hold on again you've begged the question how how does that love the neighbor are we sure that that's the best way to love your neighbor and and so to do this is you can argue and this is how it should happen this is how it should happen is that the best way to love your neighbor is by being a socialist for these reasons the best way to love your neighbor is to follow this covid protocol for these reasons that's one thing to say if you don't do this then you don't love your neighbor that's just dishonest and it's unfair toward your fellow christian well it's a matter of whose standard are you using Right. right. Your standard, your standard is loving your neighbor. You know, the equivalency is loving your neighbor means getting a COVID shot or, or your equivalency is loving your neighbor uh, means supporting socialism. And again, anytime we try to supplant our own, uh, again, standard, our own opinions and, and use Bible verses as really kind of like what you said, Jack, as a weapon, use it as a spear to, to, to thrust at Christians or to at other Christians and say, you do this because this verse, you do things my way for this, because of this verse. That's again, another scary thought. That's something that is very, is very sobering to think about the fact that a lot of Christians use, have used this verse in this way in just the last two, three years. Um, And so for those reasons, I don't want to repeat everything y'all have said, that's why it is overtaken, in, in our opinion, Matthew 7, verse 1, as, as the most misused verse. Because even within the church, you think about Matthew 7, 1, the do not judge. Most of the time, obviously it's not all the time, most of the time, who was that misused by? The world, right? You know, people who didn't really have a lot of Bible knowledge, people who would say, well, you can't judge me. This one is different and is possibly even more threatening because now what we're seeing is a lot of people within the church are misusing it and abusing it. And to me, again, once, once again, that's even scarier. So, so what uh, I want to make one more point real quickly. Um, Romans 14 is, is really the big issue on all these matters of opinion. Right. And we talked about that on our COVID episode. I'm not going to get too deep into it, 
the real key is letting matters of opinion be matters of opinion. And that's the problem with abusing love your neighbor as yourself is that's a commandment. That's not a matter of opinion. And so if you take your opinion and shoehorn it into love your neighbor as yourself, oh, suddenly nothing's a matter of opinion anymore. You have to comply with, with what I said because if you don't, you don't love your neighbor. You have to accept my opinion. That's not fair. It's just not. You have to let opinions be opinions. And it's still your opinion that this is the best way to love your neighbor. It's just not okay to manipulate the scripture like that against your fellow Christians. That's what I was going to, I guess, ask is what is the appropriate, we've done this kind of with the rest of them, what's the appropriate way to read this then if it's not making sure that our neighbor is okay with us? I think it's important for us to to preface this in that loving your neighbor doesn't mean you and your neighbor will agree on everything or that, again, as you just mentioned, Jack, the matters of opinion, that their matter of opinion stands above yours in every single way. You can get into, well, I'd give up meat sacrifice or I'd give up all meat if it was going to offend my brother, right, with Paul. Um, so there is an aspect of, of wanting to, as far as it depends on us, be at peace with all men. But how should we read into or what should we read out of this in terms of loving your neighbor as yourself? If it doesn't mean the matters of opinion, what does that tangibly look like? I think Matthew seven twelve, of course, the golden rule being the practical application of the second greatest commandment, right? Second mm-hmm. greatest commandment is love your neighbor as yourself. The golden rule is do unto others as you would have them do unto you, right? And And so that is with this. And sometimes doing unto others means understanding other people, giving them a little bit of space to disagree with us, that we want other people to do that with us, we should do that to them. And and so on, things like this, sometimes that's what we have to do. It doesn't mean what I would want them to do, I think they should have to do it themselves. That, 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 that's not what it means at all. <laughs> right. Well, it's as, you know, love your neighbor as yourself. And as myself, I, you know, want them to get a, I, right. I got a COVID shot. I want them to get yeah. a COVID shot. Everybody as has myself. to be me. Yeah. Yeah. Why not? Yeah. No, I think that's good. Um, and and again, I hope for our listeners, they can understand why this one uh, jumped ahead of Matthew 7. One, this is becoming a lot more popular. As you mentioned, Will, a lot of people in the church are misusing this one. Uh, it is very important for us as Christians to love. We're not saying don't, clearly. I think, Jack, your point of the golden rule is spot on, um, that we treat people, our, our job is to treat people well. Our job is to, I think, be at peace as far as it depends upon, on us. Um but when well, the fact it, that Jesus says there's no other commandment greater than these, and this is one of those that falls into that, mm-hmm. is, is obviously we're not sitting up here saying don't follow this one, right? Right. But make sure you understand what it's saying. Right. This is huge. So yeah, that's that's absolutely. Um, let's get into though. Unless you guys got any other thoughts? No. Nope. No, I just want to know who gets to reveal number one. Joe, Jack, this uh, is Jack. This is your podcast. <laughs> no, it's, it's not my podcast anymore. Uh, every time it's been my podcast, it dies after about four episodes. So this is uh, this is our our podcast. <laughs> Um, I think we're back to Joe's turn, so go ahead. All right. Um, Do we need drum a drum roll, please? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the top number one misused Bible verse, or verse, as Jack might say, um, <laughs> is Philippians 4.13. Philippians 4.13. I don't even think that we would need to read this. Um, maybe, you know, we'll go ahead and read it. But uh, again, out of the NASB, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Man, you see this everywhere. This is at uh, high school football games. This is on t- Tim Tebow's little eye black, you know, for the football. This is on, um, you know, graduation cards and all t-shirts. Kind of I, yeah. I mean, if you have not seen Philippians 4.13 used on literally every last thing known to man, every marketing material, um, then maybe you have not been uh, been around too long. This is a big one. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, through him who strengthens me. Uh 
I don't even know where to begin with it. I mean, fellas, I will open it up. How is this misuse? So I'll, I'll let you guys well, take the reins. So on I'll this. start with kind of the popularization of it. Obviously, Tim Tebow put it on his uh, eye black for, um, I want to say it was a big national championship game or something. He, I think he was, if yeah. I remember right, he normally did John 316 or something, then he switched it to Philippians 413. And the next day, it was like the most Googled, uh, you know, entry in the search. Which is really cool. It is cool. Right, exactly. But what we have done is we have taken this verse and pretty much used it to say, I can do anything I want if I have Christ. I can do anything. The emphasis is on me. The emphasis is on I. What can I do? We use it in sports quite a bit. You know, I can I can win this national championship because I have Christ. You know, I can make these two free throws because I have Christ. You know, and, and we use it once again, to me, the, the, the issue with it is we use it in a very selfish way. And if you read the context, I'll let some of these guys, I'll let you two get into more of what the context is. But Paul is not using this verse to talk about himself. He's not using this verse to boost himself up about what he can do. In fact, if you read the previous verse, he says, I know how to be abased or I know how to live humbly and I know how to abound. I know how to live in, in, in plenty. You know, I've learned in all in verse 11, I've learned in whatever state I am to be content. Why can he be content? Why can he pretty much, you know, no matter if he is living in a poor house, if he's in prison or if he's at the top of the world, it's because of Christ. The emphasis here for Paul is Christ. The emphasis is not himself. We have taken this verse and used it to kind of glorify ourselves with Christ kind of pushing us upward towards greatness. That's not exactly what the verse is referring to. What would you guys have to add to that? That's exactly right. I, I think it's so funny if you really like take this out to its logical ends that we've made all things mean whatever I need it to mean. Uh, it can be my my college, my athletic achievements, my career, whatever it may be. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's like let's put that to the test. Jump off of the Empire State Building and start flapping your arms. You know, it says all <laughs> hey, things, you can do right? All, things. all of yeah. a sudden, we don't believe that all things means all things. We realize all things has a certain context. Okay, so what does it mean? And all things is exactly what Will you're saying there in that context of. All things is any circumstances, anything I go through. Paul's been in prison. He's been shipwrecked. He's been through all these terrible things. Been stoned, yeah. Yeah, he's been stoned. He's been left for dead. He says, I can do all of it. It doesn't matter to me. I'm okay with it because it's Christ who strengthens me. I'm living for him, as, as he says at the start of the book of Philippians. And this is really one of those that builds on the immediate context where he's talking about in any situation I can be content and also the context of the whole book and that he's living for Christ to live as Christ and to die as gain. And, and so he's given up everything for Christ in Philippians three, he talks about his whole resume and how he counts it as trash so that he can have Jesus. And uh, like his whole life is dedicated to living for Jesus. And when you're doing that earlier in this, uh, this chapter, he says, rejoice always. How do you rejoice always? How do you rejoice when you're shipwrecked? How do you rejoice when you're thrown in jail and beaten? Because you're living for Christ. How He says, be anxious for nothing, a few verses later. How can you be anxious for nothing? Because you have Christ strengthening you, because you're living for his purpose, you're thankful to him, you're getting that peace. All of these verses build up to this conclusion, and this goes back to what we talked about at the start, taking one verse, ripping it out of Philippians 4, and slapping it on whatever we want to put it on, just leads to these atrocious conclusions that totally miss the point. And the point is a really beautiful one of that if you're living for Christ and serving his purposes, no matter what you go through, you can, you can make face it. anything. Yeah, you right. can face it. And, 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 and rejoice in it. Not just get through it, but rejoice in it. It's interesting that this is, uh, to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, this is the distinction I might make. 
anything I go through, Christ can strengthen me versus everything that I get to do. You know, like that the, the emphasis for Paul is anything that I go through, meaning anything that is done to me, passively done to me, um, I can make it through because of Christ. I can be a Jack, as you said, you know, my, my anxiety and everything else can go down. I can rejoice in the Lord because Christ strengthens me to do it. No matter what situation I'm in, whether I'm in shipwreck stone, whatever else I can, I can face it because of Christ. We turn it and look future focused and say, anything that I want to do, any business venture I'm going to get into any, any national championship game I'm going to play in Christ is there to strengthen me. So one is looking almost more toward the passive things happening. One's looking more toward the active things. And that goes to your flapping the wings off of the Empire State Building. Um, that's not the context. If that was a, a passive thing, well, you still wouldn't sprout wings, I guess, right. if it happened to you. But still, um, I think there's that's the distinction to be made is, hey, no matter what Paul is going through, and now we don't look at whatever I'm going through, we look at whatever I choose to do to actively participate. Does that make sense? Am I off on that? It does. No, it, it makes sense. And and one element of this that I would also point out is that we're, we're not sitting here trying to be the, you know, old men, get off my lawn, you know, yelling at clouds type of thing. <laughs> you know, this is a I very, am, but... maybe Jack is. Yeah. <laughs> He's like two this, years away. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No, this is a very positive thought, right? Th- this is something that we should be, um, excited about and when it, you know when it comes to the fact that we do have christ you know we're not saying that this is not you know philippians is about joy that, that's what the book is about and paul once again is saying anything i go through anything that i endure i can endure because i have christ so we're not saying you know i, I love that, that tebow you know took it to, to, to new heights i'm no just we're we are just wary of again the way we can use it to kind of glorify ourselves the way we well, can use it to boost ourselves that's the that's spot on. That's exactly it. Is the individualized Christianity that we have turned this into? Yep. Of every Bible verse is about me, how it affects me. Jeremiah twenty nine eleven is a perfect example of this. Um, once again, you talk about graduation cards and and all of that. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. And man, does that, I would, I would say that's on 75% of graduation cards. Oh yeah. Maybe, maybe that's too high, but certainly Christian ones. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's a lot because who doesn't want to be told that you have plans for welfare and not calamity. So what do you tell the college student who, you know, gets in a wreck and his life is forever changed as he's coming out of, you know, well, I thought I had plans for welfare. What, how do we handle that? Well, a lot of people can get mixed up because we're reading ourselves into this verse. You put the context into that one. That is God before Israel go or Judah goes into Babylonian captivity. And he's like, Hey, uh, so guys, you're going to go into captivity for 70 years, but I've still got good plans for you. Tell that to the college graduate. Tell it, hey, your life's over. Your home's going to be wrecked. You're going to be gonna carried off. Right. Yeah, and, and you're going to have to go live in a foreign land where you're a subject for the rest of your life. But uh, tell that to Daniel, you know, and, and things yeah. worked out well for Daniel, but that's a pretty rough sale. And, and, and so it's like, oh, this positive verse, everything's going to be great. Not necessarily. That's not what that means. And I think with these verses, the... Real issue. I think most people realize the the hollowness of prosperity gospel. Joel Osteen getting up there smiling, telling you how great things are. Kenneth Copeland and health and wealth and all these promises of everything's going to go great for you because God is here to serve you your you, best you, life you, now. You, all the, you. yeah, you. Right. Um, but man, these verses we can we can still let them get to us in that way. Philippians four thirteen, Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. And basically, I'm gonna have a good life. And Joe, as you said, then something bad happens, and it's like, whoa, whoa. You know, your your faith is wrecked because it's. I was on, promised welfare. Yeah, yeah, your faith was on 
good things happen to people who follow God, and then you end up with the Job treatment. Okay, well, apparently I wasn't following good God good enough. What did I do? Right. No, it's, again, Paul, he was doing really well for God. He was thrown in jail. Job, he was a great guy. He went through all those things. Peter, real strong Christian, you know, one of the apostles leading the early church. He was executed. Jesus himself. Uh, I mean, that is the, the biggest problem of the, the prosperity gospel and all these things of, of this idea of everything goes great for people who follow God. The person who followed God, the, you know, the father better than anybody else got put on a cross for doing yeah, right. so. And so it is not a promise of everything going great. And, and to read it this way is really to butcher context and miss, as Will said, a much more powerful point. And that's what, what, what I was going to say. One of the things I'd recommend to, to young people, old people alike, keep quoting Philippians 4.13, but make sure you're quoting verses 11 and 12 as well. You know, keep using the, the you know, Philippians 4.13 as, as the central message for a, for a Devo or for a study, but make sure you include 11 and 12 too, because of the perspective that it adds. I, I preached recently and I made the, this point with Romans 5.8. How often do we, do we use Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That is a powerful verse. It is so much more powerful when you take into account verses six and seven as well. You know, but so often we'll just jump to verse eight, we'll quote it, we'll move on. You don't really get the full emphasis of, of, of what Paul is saying. Once again, his entire thought, unless you read verses six, seven, and I would even argue verses nine and 10 as well of that particular section. The but same the with section. Uh, the Jeremiah 29, 11. I think it's 29, 13 says, you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. Put that on your yep. college graduate card. Of, yeah. You know, don't worry about the plans of prosperity and all that. God's going to work in your life. He's there for you, but... What you need more than anything is not, hey, do whatever you want and it's going to go great because of God. Seek him with all your heart. And and that's going to be what you need more than anything else. And the coolest thing is in both of those books, in Philippians and in Jeremiah, Jeremiah is one of the saddest books of the Bible. This guy preaches his entire, the weeping prophet. He, he preaches his entire life and doesn't convert a single person. He is telling of the coming destruction of, of Jerusalem, you know, and, and the 70 years of captivity. It's not a happy message. It is a pretty downer book for a guy that it's thrown into a pit, has a lot of bad things happen to him. He's not believed he's hated in the midst of this is hope in the midst of this. And, and the hope is not immediate. The hope is seek me with all your heart you know, and God will be there. And so there's that hopeful message in the midst of Philippians, which is a book about making sure you put the gospel first. Paul is using himself as an illustration, as Christ, as, as Epaphroditus, as Timothy, he's giving all of these things of Epaphroditus almost dying, right? I mean, people going through a lot of different difficult things, Christ leaving heaven, Paul, and all the things that he went through. Um, and the point of all of this is we can make it through. There's a, a line of hope throughout all every situation because of Christ. So, and, and the way that God works throughout human history, it's really cool. So to your point, Will, use it, use these passages big time. But to me, when I know the, the context of Jeremiah 29, 11, knowing that they're about to enter into 70 years of captivity and God is still telling them that that makes that message way more powerful. And Jack, to your point, you know, verse verses right after, when you look at the context, like it makes it way more powerful than just the cute little graduation card or, you know, whatever it is, write that on a, um, you know, for wedding or whatever else is, are we wrong to use it in that way? 
I don't, I don't think you're going to hell for using scripture. You're missing the point is, is the purpose of all of this. We're not condemning anybody for doing it. We're just missing the point. And in these cases, we're missing, in my opinion, the better point, the much bigger, greater point that could be made out of this. And that's really where the hope lies, not in just a cheesy, you know, throw it on a, on a card, but like, man, there's some depth to these verses. So dig into it. I want to make you know, one more point about Jeremiah 29, and that's that a lot of those people that went to Babylon died there. They didn't get yeah. to come home. They didn't get to see the beautiful promises. They didn't get to see the temple restored and the walls restored, Nehemiah, Ezra, those things that happened. They just didn't. And yet yeah. the promise was still for them. And, and I think we interpret these verses on such an individualized level, that God's plans for me. No, God has plans for a people, and you are part of it. You're a cog in that system. You are blessed. We're all blessed to be part of that, but sometimes our part of that is... Paul or Peter, to be executed. Sometimes our part of that is to die in Babylon while waiting for something better. Our part is not always going to be the glorious part where we're winning the Super Bowl. Um, Our part might be to grind out a very difficult living in a very difficult time in a faithful way, and God's going to see that and honor it. You know, it's that that point is not funny, but you know what's kind of funny about all this? Guess what verse was on my graduation card? It was sent out in 2017. <laughs> it's funny. I did not have any say in it, so I, I can't get blamed for it. But yeah, I remember getting them in the mail, you know, after we'd ordered them. And I was like, oh, who chose that verse? And I don't even I don't even remember who chose who chose it. But um, so to 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 recap, Jeremiah 29 11 was not the number one verse. It was something that we um, there's a spin-off. Yeah, kind of, yeah, kind of a spin-off with Philippians 4:13 coming in at number one for the most misused, abused. If we have time, briefly, I want to see if these guys have any honorable mentions that we want to throw out there. Again, we could have done a top 10 if we if we wanted to spend six hours here. But um, you guys have any honorable mentions you want to throw out there of stuff that almost made the list? I think the this goes along with Philippians 4.13, Jeremiah 29, the, the health and wealth is Romans 8.28. You know, oh, all yeah. things will work we, out for yeah. good. Um, and, and I love God, so I'm going to get this new truck. Uh, no. That's, that's not exactly it. All things will work together for good. All things will work together for good. So I know I'm going to be a millionaire. Um, No, that's, I think that one, I think John 316, that's held up all the time. Everybody sees that. And it's not so much misused as it's just overused with people not really realizing what that means of just believe. And then of course there's the believe and obey coming later in that chapter, I think in verse 38. Um, And so 36, there you go. Um, and so, yeah, the belief carries along with it. The idea of obedience as well. Most people kind of skip past. Those would be my two is John 3, 16 and Romans 8, 28. Jack, you got any? Uh, Romans 10, 9 and 10 in that same of confessing, you know, basically if you just say it and then paired with that is Revelation 3, I want to say 21. Um, I don't have it off or written down uh, where Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. And that's where people get ask Jesus into your heart. Not what it's talking about at all. Um, and so... Those are a few, especially when it comes to salvation, that the people get misled on. Uh, Will, what about you? It's Revelation three twenty, by the way. Twenty, close. Ah. yeah, Ugh. so close. Do you Sorry. even better study? Better, better, better Bible. next time, man. <laughs> Come on. Um, mine would be John uh, chapter eight verse seven is the one that I also brought up when we were kind of talking about this. It ties a lot into Matthew seven verse one. Um, but you think about John uh, chapter eight, when the, they bring the adulterous woman mm-hmm. before Jesus and they're kind of using it to test him. Uh, you know, what do you, what do, you know, what do you say about this? The law says she should be stoned. What do you say? And uh, verse seven. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And you hear that just about as much as you hear. Don't judge. Hey, he who is without sin, cast the first stone. 
And they'll use that to, again, to kind of say, well, you're just as sinful as that person. So you don't have any right to, again, you don't have any right to judge. It's pretty much the way this verse will be used. Everybody so, sin, so don't point out somebody's sin. Yeah. Right, exactly. And we know from scripture uh, or that you look at the rest of this particular section, uh, John chapter 8, uh, verse 11, what does Jesus say? He says, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. The emphasis is on, hey, you've still got to stop what you're doing. And Jesus mm-hmm. still pointed it out. Um, but yeah, those were those were... The top 10 would have been interesting, but uh, we wanted to narrow it down to, to five. Uh, so, yeah, that would be the one that I would say would be John chapter 8, verse 7. All right. So a quick recap. Five, Matthew 18, verse 20, two or three or more gathered in my name. Four, Galatians three twenty-eight. neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female. Matthew, uh, number three, Matthew 7, 1, do not judge so that you will not be judged. Number two, Mark 12, 31, love your neighbors yourself. Number one. Philippians 4.13, and the three principles we got at. I want to repeat that as well. Number one, context, context, context. The immediate context, the context of the books, uh, the book. Don't rip verses out on their own. Number two, don't use Bible verses against each other. If your understanding of one verse contradicts another one, you got to work it out until they make sense together. Number three, drawing a blank on number three, guys. What did I say? <laughs> number three was... Make sure you know what Bible verses do mean and not just what they don't there mean. There you go. There we go. Um, I, I knew it all along. It got lost in the shuffle there, but we, we write found it our way there in the end. Jack. I know. <laughs> uh, better notes. Okay, let's quickly get to sermon sum up. I say quickly, but we never go quickly, so we'll do what we can. Yeah, Joe, um, are you listening? No. Yeah, Joe, quickly. <laughs> hey, hey, that's, quickly. That is rude. We're going to start putting a timer on you. <laughs> I feel you guys are judging me. Very nice. Um, all right, so I guess I'll go first. Uh, I have to take my turn every now and then. I am continuing uh, continuing my consecutive preaching through the Gospel of Mark, and actually, funny enough, I'm I'm right here, Mark twelve thirty one, the two greatest commandments. Nice. Um, but really, it's this this whole concluding section of the Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, uh, the Herodians. They've all been coming at Jesus and just throwing challenges at him, and he just keeps embarrassing them. He's like, "Yeah, you don't know what you're talking about. Actually, this is the answer." And and they think they've got him trapped, and he just keeps wriggling out of it. And so at the end, this this other scribe comes and says, "It says, recognizing that Jesus is answering well, he says." So what's what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus gives him the two greatest commandments, and the guy comes back and he's like, "You're right, you know that these things are more important than even all the sacrifices." And Jesus is like, "Yes, you're almost to the kingdom. You're getting it." Um, and then after that, Jesus makes the point about whose son, uh, you know, why would David call his son the Messiah, his Lord? Hmm? Well, you know, what do you think that's teaching there? Pointing out to them that the Messiah is greater than David, even though he's the son of David. Um, and then finally, he points out that they're hypocrites. The uh, the Pharisees, the scribes, they like to be seen. They like to make sure everyone thinks they're great. And then the widow comes and, and gives her uh, mite coin in there, barely gives anything to Jesus. So she gave, give, gave more than everybody. Uh, I got my three points because you have to have three points. But there's three stories here, so it works out well. The first, this uh, I, I call it Christianity in 90 seconds. You can read this section out loud in 90 seconds. It sums up everything. Number one, the two greatest commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. All of the commandments of Christianity fall under those two things. Number two, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the son of David, so he's the king, but also he precedes David. David viewed him as Lord. Jesus is Lord. Number three, live by faith sacrificially as the widow did. It's all laid out right there. After they've just missed over and over and over and over with all their questions to Jesus, it's like, this is what getting it looks like. You Mm. acknowledge that Jesus is Lord and gets to make all the rules. You love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. You live by faith sacrificially. That's it. 
I, I love that section of scripture before. Cause I mean, that man, they are throwing a 105 mile an hour heat, you know, just trying to strike Jesus out. And mm-hmm. Jesus just knocks it out of the park every yep. single time, you know, just with the ease. It's not even a problem. Every Good stuff, Jack. I'll be yeah, stealing exactly. it. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so Roman, I brought up Romans five, um, just a, a few minutes ago that that's where I preached from recently. So I'll, I'll go there. Uh, I brought up the Romans five, eight thing that I already brought up the fact that we, we jumped straight to verse eight when we really need to take into account verses six and seven. But the, the title of the lesson that I had was what did Jesus die for? Um, you ask that question, you know, for people off the top of their head, what's their answer going to be? Oh, well, Jesus died for my sins. And while that's not technically incorrect by any means, you know, it is so critically important that we understand what the death of Jesus truly did. Um, just to chalk it up to a simple answer of, oh, well, Jesus died for my sins, doesn't really do it justice. And so we use Romans 5, or I use Romans 5, verses 6 through 10, mainly verses 8 through 10, to pull just kind of three things, nothing super innovative, nothing super creative. It's literally straight from Scripture about, you know, what did Jesus' death accomplish? What did Jesus' death accomplish? What did Jesus die for? Uh, so so one verse, uh, again, three points, just like you, Jack. Um Verse verse eight, Jesus died to demonstrate God's love. I think that's uh, clearly obvious, again, especially from verse eight. Verse nine, Je- uh, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. So number two, Jesus died to save us from his wrath. You know, we don't like to talk about the wrath of God very much. We'd rather talk about his love and his grace and his mercy. But Jesus died so that he could pretty much be our shield from the wrath of God. It's something we need to talk about as well. And then thirdly, verse 10 if then we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So Jesus died to reconcile us to God. It's a very chilling thought that without Jesus, we would be in the precarious position of being labeled an enemy of God. If there's one person that I would not want to be an enemy of, it would probably be the all-powerful, all-knowing creator of the universe. And so, again, just kind of making the point that when we ask the question, what did Jesus die for? goes so much farther than just, oh, well, Jesus died for my sins. And so th- those were kind of the three that I pulled from Scripture and went into went into a few other things, but that was kind of the gist of it. Cool. It's solid. Time. I like it. Uh, I'm still preaching through Jonah, so I am uh, just preached through Jonah chapter 2. And this is a bizarre chapter, I'll just be honest. Uh, there's a lot of discussion back and forth on whether Jonah's prayer was legit or was kind of fraudulent. It's coming from a man who's hit rock bottom or coming from a man who still has not hit rock bottom. Um, and I still don't know fully where I fall on this, uh, what I believe on this, because I think there are legitimate points to both. What it does seem to be is that Jonah is legitimately thankful for his physical blessings, the physical salvation from God. Um, he still does not quite grasp the spiritual concept here. He never repents for what he did in chapter one. Um, never even makes mention of it kind of seems to blame God in verse three as it being, um, you know, you had cast me into the deep into the heart of the seas, uh, your breakers and billows passed over me. Um, it seems like he's kind of blaming God there. And then toward the end, he gets back with this kind of self-righteousness of, um, those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness is how it says in, in, in AS, NIV actually, I think has a pretty strong translation here. Um, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. And the idea here seems to be that Jonah is kind of representing Israel. I'm thankful for my physical salvation, still not grasping the spiritual point that is being made. Um, I'm God's person. I'm not like these idol worshipers. Uh, I've received that grace. And I think he's kind of missing the boat here. And so just a couple of things that I thought were cool. It seems in studying 
Um, it seems that Jonah actually did die. A lot of people think Jonah did die. I think it actually follows that he did die uh, with his going down to the depth of Sheol, which is uh, and the pit, which also seems to indicate uh, that's obviously in the Old Testament that's um, correlated with death quite a bit. It seems to make sense with Jesus being raised from the dead and Jonah being raised from the dead um, and Jonah's thankfulness in coming out of that. Even the idea of his um, fainting away in verse seven is the like dying breath is really what's being said there. His, his last breath while he was doing that seems God saved him from that. So there's a lot of interesting things that seem to point toward Jonah being actually resurrected here. Um, I can't state, I'm not going to say for sure, but some, some interesting points anyway. So I get to the end, I kind of exegete through it and I get to the end and I made, um, once again, three, of course has to be three hmm. application points. And the first is when do we turn to God and how do we turn to him? Jonah did it at the very last second. He's running from God, running from God, running from God. Um, they have to cast lots in order for him in chapter one to finally fess up and say, Hey, it's me. Um, I did that. He's, he seems to kind of be hiding out of shame. He's running from God. He has the audacity in verse four to say, I have been expelled from your sight. I'm sorry. I thought that's what you wanted, Jonah. Duh. <laughs> Duh. You were running from the presence of God. Um, but anyway, when do we approach God in prayer? Only at the depth of our despair and the, at the very last moment, do we reach out to him or are we reaching out to him all along the way? And are we doing so recognizing our own sin, recognizing our need to repent and our need to come to him or with kind of a self-righteous um, approach like Jonah? Second, do we find ourselves thanking God for his blessings without a true change of heart? Jonah is very grateful that God saved his life, but we see from chapter four, uh, three and four, Jonah really doesn't seem to have a change of heart. He's still burnt about Nineveh being saved and, you know, very frustrated by it. So even though he recognizes, and it's almost like verse 10 is that, you know, salvation is from the Lord. It's like, that's the, the magic word to let the fish spit him out of the mouth. Once he understood salvation is from the Lord. Okay. Now go preach. Now you get it. Except Jonah doesn't really get it. He knows physical salvation is from the Lord. He's grateful for it. It is a true thankfulness, but there's no actual change of heart. I think we can be thankful for the blessings of God without actually following through on, on following him. Um, even though he does go to Nineveh, but his heart's not right. And then the third thing is, do we recognize salvation comes from the Lord? Or do we only focus on our salvation like Jonah? It's very easy um, to make this cliche. We need to take that in for a second and say, literally, Forgiveness is offered to every single person on the planet, including the most brutal people, some of the most brutal people that have ever existed. God still cares for them. He still um, is able and willing to offer forgiveness to them. That goes to the very worst of our enemies. We need to glory in that for a second, um, you know, give glory to God in that and not let that be cliche that salvation does indeed come from the Lord. But the second thing is Jonah kind of wanted to keep that for himself. He gives a little pot shot in verse eight to those who regard vain idols. Salvation is from the Lord. Jonah, what does that mean to you? That means to God, that means go to Nineveh. Salvation's from the Lord for them too. What does that mean to us? Do we keep salvation to ourselves or do we recognize there's a Nineveh outside our doors that needs it too? Just like I need it, they need it. And that should be, that should cause the change of heart. And it should cause us to be a lot more likely to go evangelize because salvation is from the Lord. It's, it's, you know, he's called me to give that to people. Um, and I can't just think about it from a, Hey, I'm saved stinks to be them. No, it's time for us to get out there and evangelize. So those are my three points. Sorry, that's long, but um, that's kind of where I went with it. Joe, it's sermon sum up, not preacher sermon. <laughs> <laughs> Shut up. 
<laughs> hey, I'm assuming if people have made it this long in the podcast, they're going to get their money's worth. All right. And I will give the people what they want. That's true. Hey, hey you did all this man crap. People. You yeah. might as well get your mileage out of it, right? That's exactly right. All right. I hey, you with your that's... you with your Mr. 90 seconds of Christianity that went like 3,000 seconds of Christianity. <laughs> I, I said it's 90 seconds to read the text. That's all yes, I said. Yes, I know. Okay. But, uh-huh, yeah, uh-huh. I, hey, let him who is without sin. <laughs> he who is without sin cast the first stone. That's right. All right. Uh, that's going to do it for us this week. Uh, I want to thank you guys for listening. Uh, as always, focuspress.org is the website. We'll have a, an episode page for, the, for this episode. Check it out. Uh, there'll be some links on there for some of the things we referenced. Focus Press on Facebook, also the Think Deeper podcast on Facebook. Be sure to like that. You'll get the updates. We're gonna we're sharing um, quote images. We're sharing clips. We're sharing stuff to um, just kind of let you know what we're up to to uh, get some word out, get the word out about the show. And as always, if you have any questions, any topics you would like to suggest, just we need to do a a Q and A episode at some point as well. So Jack at focuspress.org. Anything you guys have to add before we get out of here? I don't think so. All right, we will see you guys or speak to you guys next week.